Hey, Roscoe. Hey, Gary. It's awfully early in the morning, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's cruelly early. I feel like we're doing Booth One Morning Drive. Yes, the <laughs> breakfast show. Yeah, traffic on the Stevenson is really backed up this morning due to the rain and the fog. Hello, friends. You've tuned into Booth One, the podcast that celebrates the creative landscape and popular culture through the art of lively conversation. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, and of course, it wouldn't be nearly as lively a conversation without my partner in patter, Roscoe, how are you this morning? I'm, I'm here and awake, and uh, my voice will get out of the basement by the time we finish taping You're today. not known as a morning person. No, I'm not. Uh, now, any, any other Saturday, I would still have about three hours of sleep to go. In, in full disclosure to our listeners, it's about noon. But it, <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like it feels very of, early. It feels like the crack of dawn. That's just a few days after Groundhog Day, and it seems that Punxsutawney Phil did not see his shadow, so it should be spring any minute now, I guess. <laughs> Looking outside, it doesn't feel that way. It's also a few days after the Iowa caucuses, and it appears that the following candidates did see their shadows and have headed for the hills. Uh, you know these as well as I do. Uh, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, Rand Paul, and Martin O'Malley all have dropped out of the race. The only person who's still hanging on by her fingernails <laughs> is my girlfriend, Carly Fiorina. What the hell is she possibly thinking? I have no idea. They're gonna, she's going to get lambasted in New Hampshire on Tuesday, and yeah. that'll be the end of that. They said the only reason you could tell that Carly Fiorina was still running is that they encountered on the highway a van that was painted red with <laughs> Carly written on the side. <laughs> but, you know, this woman gets no press. She's never discussed. Oh, she does, does she, get press. It's all bad press. Yeah, it's, it's all bad press. Does she show up to empty room? Who's giving her money? Who's showing up to listen? I, well, I would tell you, if we were in Iowa, I would have gone. I would have gone to a town oh, hall. Oh, I, I would have gone. I almost drove to Iowa to see her at a town hall or something, because just just to say I did it. Yes. Just to say that I was one of the five people in the room when it happened. Uh, last week we talked about a show that uh, our producer and myself went to see over the holidays called Burning Bluebeard, and I, I did not describe the show very well, and and I, I think I did it a disservice. So I, I just want to repeat what that show is about, and I found something in a local um, entertainment magazine that describes it beautifully. Right. Burning Bluebeard, the wistful, witty piece penned by the neo-futurist Jay Torrance, memorializes the 600 victims of the 1903 fire at Chicago's absolutely fireproof, quote-unquote, Iroquois Theater. Now, we all said it was 1906. In fact, it's 1903, so there's a correction right there as well. During a holiday matinee, we got that part right. In the piece, six lightly singed members of the Christmas pantomime, Mr. Bluebeard, address members of the audience as though they are at the Iroquois on that fateful December day, uh, with the goal of successfully completing the performance and thus negating the tragedy. Uh, as a slightly sinister clown who seems to be rooting for failure puts it, quote, the building was fireproof, its contents weren't. I just wanted to throw that out to our listeners because, I, again, I thought I did it a disservice. Most of that segment, we talked about the fireflies in the jars <laughs> that they yes, handed us that were supposed to represent the spirits of the dead yeah. and how we don't like audience participation. Yeah, theater. holding don't, it in your yeah. lap and getting in. Yeah, just like, let me sit here and watch the play and don't engage me. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of being engaged, we have a special guest in our studio today. I've told you about this, right? 
No. <laughs> Do we? You're kidding. Well, with us today is Mr. Rick Boynton, creative producer at Chicago Shakespeare Theater out on Navy Pier right here in Chicago. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Thank you. Boy, we have been wanting to have you on for ages, and we're delighted that you could find the time to make it. Have you seen Burning Bluebeard? Did you see I it? I did any? see Blue- Burning Bluebeard. Um, I think Helena Kays directed that. Yeah. Um, I thought there was a lot of creative imagery. I thought she did a really great job. Yeah, did you see it in this um, iteration the this last year? Time. Yeah, this year in the in the larger space yeah. at the Den. You guys Theater. saw it too. Yeah, yeah. R- I saw it a couple of years. And ago. you liked the audience participation part most of all. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like that. <laughs> like hand me a jar and then like make me sit there with it in my lap with it shining in my face. Did, did you get that hand- was your favorite part? Yeah. Did yeah. you did <laughs> you did you get handed anything? Did you have to hold no. a, a gift or anything? No, we arrived right at curtain time and we were in the last row. And Ugh. so we didn't get anything. That's we the way observed to do it. and had I yes. we we got privileged seats in the second row. Had I known there was going to be the specter of audience participation, I would have sat in the back so I wouldn't have to be um, confronted by that. Now you're the creative producer at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Now that is a rather unique and I would say maybe the coolest position title I have ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) You've been there quite some time. Describe what it is you do in this capacity at CST. Like walk us through a day in the life of Rick Boynton. I started at Chicago Shakespeare Theater as the casting director. I was hired in 1995, and then I was there for five years and was the casting director and became the associate artistic director. In 2000, I was hired at the Marriott Theater to go be the artistic director there and was there for five years and then came back to Chicago Shakespeare Theater as the creative producer. I oversee all the art on the stage. I, I work with a team on season planning. I oversee all the new work. I'm, I do all the dramaturgical work on all of our new plays and new musicals. Basically, and then connecting how does the finance connect to the art in terms of the artistic bang for the buck. In a nutshell, that's what I do. In a nutshell. You mentioned that you were the artistic director at Marriott Lincolnshire. For our listeners, that is a local regional theater company that does mostly remounts of musicals. And um, new works, too. And they're beginning to do much more in terms of new works. Did you, in that capacity, were you involved with the new works more so than the remounts? Uh, what was what was your at role? At Marriott? There? Yeah, at Marriott. At Marriott, actually, it's a very, or at least when I was there, it was it's a very small staff. And so I really was the artistic director oversee all of the art on the stage, but I was also the casting director and and the, you know, worked very closely with the TD when we had a TD and we didn't really have a production manager at that time. So it was a really skeletal staff for a really sizable budget theater that had, when I left, we have 41,000 subscribers in oh. this 900 wow. seat house. And and really, I'm, I'm so proud of, of, of of my time at Marriott and uh, Terry James, I adore Terry James. He's he's been there for for many years as the executive producer and has really done an incredible job with the theater. And they do they do terrific work. They do everything from classic musicals and or revisals or you know revisions of of a, of a particular musical, but they also do um, new musicals as well. And while I was there, we did we did a couple of them. Uh, name a couple of those that you uh, we mounted. D- yeah, we did Honk. 
Oh, it's the Ugly Duckling story that George Stiles and um, Anthony Drew, who did subsequently did Mary Poppins and uh, Soho Cinders, which is this great gay take on the Cinderella story. There were two <laughs> Brits, and actually Ants came and directed it for us at, at Marriott. It had won, Honk won the Olivier. Wow. And it was sort of like the little, the little, um, the little engine that could. Great honk. That's right. A right? Great no, story. but actually, it's such a great <laughs> honk. Is a great story because honk went regional. They've never honk never went to New York. It went regionally, and they, I, I, they're very good friends of mine. They make more money on that show regionally than they do on many of their other shows that they that have gone to tremendous successes on Broadway and on the West End. Well, it's such a great title. How could you yeah. not want to go see yeah. a, a play called Honk? You started out as a performer um, I was. in Chicago. Am I right? I was. In fact, no, Roscoe, knee high you, to a grasshopper. I, I probably saw you. Did you back did in you the see? day at Marriott? You I, what, probably. What were somebody tell us some the of your first show I did? Um, I was fresh out of Northwestern, and Dominic Massimi cast me in 1776 as the Courier, which is um, Mama Look Sharp. Mm-hmm. The song Mama Look Sharp. Mm-hmm. I was so it was such a great experience. I mean, Roger Mueller was John Adams and um, Joe Van Slyke. Do you guys remember Joe yes. Van Slyke? Yes, of course. Precious Joe Van Slyke, who is unfortunately no longer with us. Mary Ernster and Kathy Santon. Do you guys remember Kathy Santon, mm-hmm. who has been on in Wicked on Broadway for years and years and years? So I did that show, and actually I was very fortunate to win a Jeff Award for that performance. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Right out of college. Well, you know. I knew Um, knew you'd work that in somehow. Well, you know, there's more where that came from. (laughs) Yeah, well, tell (laughs) tell (laughs) us. Rick, tell us about your other Jeff Awards. (laughs) As Roscoe's fond of saying, you can't can't be on this show unless you've won at least a Jeff Award. (laughs) You know what? I made a living as an actor. I made a living as an actor for, for several years. And I'll never forget, though, I did. Do you guys remember Sheer Madness? Of course, it's 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 coming back. We saw that in the it, basement of the painted over the Chicago Theater when they tried to remount it at the Chicago Theater. Maybe, oh, right, in the right, 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 right. Maybe eight well, or I nine did it. Years yeah, ago. I did it, but way before that. And um, at, at the, the Blackstone. Blackstone. <laughs> Thank you. In unison oh, wow. again, please. <laughs> at, at the, the Blackstone. Blackstone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, at the Blackstone. And I will never, I, I will never forget those conditions were second to none. We, we would change up in one of the hotel rooms and then we'd come down into the ballroom because it was a ballroom, right? And it, it had flats, really canvas flats. And then there was a backstage behind the canvas flats, but you couldn't get out, you couldn't leave behind the flats once the show started because there was no exit. And so <laughs> there was no bathroom back there. They had a little room with baggies. <gasps> and I will... No, I know! Baggies? I know! Hello, Actors' Equity. I know! <laughs> so I'm literally backstage and I'm going, oh my God, I can't be doing this when I'm 40 years old. I can't be doing this when I'm 40 years old. That literally was my epiphany. And I said, I literally said to myself, I have to, I need, I want to do something else. I'm going to do something else. What am I going to do? I think I'll be a casting director. Yeah. I'll be a casting director. And so I went, and I, I'm, I knew, do you guys know Tara Alonzo? Yes. Who, who was the casting director at the Goodman Theater? And so I went to her, and I was like, Tara, I, I, I don't want to act anymore. I want to be a casting director. And she was like, you're crazy. And if you want to be a casting director, you should go be an agent. Okay. How do I go be an agent? Well, 
you know, there are these agents. Harice Davidson. You sure. guys remember Harice Davidson talent? Yeah, discovered Marley Matlin, right? That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Oh, she's got an amazing roster. She had an amazing roster. And she was a big agency at the time. And so I went there and got hired as the industrial film agent. And so I did that for a while. And then in a couple couple years, I became the head of the feature film television department. It, that was boom time for it because that was the early... That was the early mid '90s, and it was boom time for on-camera work in Chicago. Jane Alderman was on contract with ABC, and The Untouchables was in town, and Missing Persons, and so she was like, "Hey, do you want to come work for me?" Oh my God, do I want to come work for you? I want to come work for you like right now, and so I did, and I, it was the most amazing thing and the, the scariest thing I've ever done. She, uh, Jane, I was Jane's associate on Missing Persons with Daniel J. Trevanti for two shows as her associate and then Jane got pneumonia and I had to take over the show so I was the casting director on the remainder of the season truly never having done it before and it was trial by fire and challenging and difficult and all sorts of things but a wonderful experience and and really got to build my resume there from there Barbara Gaines called one day and said hey Kate Buckley's no longer going to be my casting director at Chicago Shakespeare Theater do you want to do it oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know if I know enough about Shakespeare. I'm not sure I do. I mean, I studied at Northwestern, and, but, and I'll never forget turning to Jane Alderman. We had a really small office, and I tur- turned to her, and I was like, Jane, this is the deal. Chicago Shakespeare Theater called. They gave me this offer. I don't know if I can do it. And she goes, Ricky, I can't sing a note, <laughs> but I can cast a musical. Oh, Jane, you are so right. You're so, so right. And, and so I took the job, and I did double duty for a little while until Chicago Shakespeare took off and, and then became the full-time casting director. All of that precipitated by having to pee in a bag backstage. See? I know. See, I know, you never I know where. I haven't offended you never someone know by where telling them to pee in the bag story. From, Roscoe, yes. do you? No, you, you never know. You just, you <laughs> like, just never know. Life do work in mysterious ways, oh, as, the, at the, as the usher at the Lyric Opera said to me. <laughs> I have a feeling you'll sure never do. look at a little baggy the same way again. How is that allowed? How did Actors' Equity allow that? Do you know what? You would have to ask them, because I have no idea, but it was an equity contract. I just know that it was it precipitated a, an epiphany and life change for me. Oh, my. I'd like to go see it again in a professional production. I, I always loved that show. I really, really? do. Yes, I love the show. <laughs> oh, my God, you're the one. Well, it's, it's, it's very funny, but it has the longest first 20 minutes of any comedy it, I've ever seen. It does. How often did the audience pick you as the murderer? Oh, I don't know. I think they picked Tony you, quite often. Because you look suspicious. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> no, I just looked pain from having to go to the bathroom and not being able to go in the bag. <laughs> I want to move forward to the to your work at Shakespeare now, but I, I want I want to go backwards first. When when you were at the Marriott, what were some of the favorite shows that you were involved with? My absolute like your favorite productions. Thing, honestly, my I, my the thing that at Marriott that I was so unbelievably proud of was Miss Saigon. I can't remember if it was the first regional production or it was the first regional production in the round. Um, It was co-directed by Joe Leonardo and um, Diane Early. I believe that what we achieved in that show was so powerful and so moving. The evacuation seemed from Vietnam. We didn't have a helicopter. We had 
these amazing fans in the grid that were blowing down so the audience was feeling the, the incredible power of the, the wind. And then what Joe and Diane did so brilliantly was to take these hurricane fences and make it about the people behind the fences. So the fences moved as, as this air was coming, you know, this air was just shooting down into the theater and the troops were heading up in a ladder into the grid and it was just, and the sound, and we really, I'm, I'm so proud of that we used everything that was available to us, what theater does best, and really cr created what I think was a really, really powerful show, and it was a great cast with a great design, and yeah, that was one of my favorites. Wow, you described that so well. As Jennifer Lopez always says in American Idol, I just got gooseies. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, what's your favorite musical? Oh, gosh. I'm so bad at like favorite. Like someone asked me the other day who my favorite, you know, uh, performer was, and I'm like, gosh, I have so many. Well, right, I have to right say now, for right today. now, for right now, I'd have to say Hamilton is one of my <gasps> favorites. You've seen it? I saw it. Oh my gosh! I saw it, and it's so fantastic. What else? What are my favorite musicals? I'm really proud of the Sense and Sensibility that we created at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Mm that's now going to the Old Globe in San Diego. We saw that production um, some months ago and were overwhelmed by the fantastic production values and the performances. I mean, kudos to whoever was the producer, the creative producer on yeah, that Yeah, we show. had to pull... <laughs> because I, I think our producer it, had to pull strings to get us it in because it was all sold out. It was unbelievably <laughs> beautifully done. Uh, I, I, you, you couldn't ask for a more professional production. And the performances to a person were just unbelievably fantastic as good a quality as as you'd see in any broadway theater um, i thought it was wonderful and it was an attractive cast too good looking good right? looking yeah they no, we, you can't we, go wrong with a good looking yeah, cast. we no. commented on that at intermission like yeah. could 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 one more just devastatingly beautiful person walk out right on stage? and you know what's so amazing you guys because talent and beauty and all of that uber nice they're all uber nice wonderfully creative people who were great worked great together it's like uh, it's sickening and they were so nice you know what's great about the san diego production is that we're taking the cast so there's only a couple that aren't able to go but we're taking the majority of the cast are you doing it san at san diego rep no we're doing it at old globe the old globe yeah. Is Paula Scrifano going? You're darn tootin' she is. Paula oh. Scrifano, who said she was retiring after after our show, is coming out of retirement. Yeah. Well, which I'm so and, and we probably, for people outside of Chicago, we, she's sort of the Ethel Barrymore of Chicago theater. Right? She's been been starring the from Lenten theater Fontaine. after theater. The Lenten Fontaine. Right, I mean, come on. They're, John Rieger. Paula's, Paula's genius at what she does and I've I've been so fortunate to work with her as an actor work with her as an artistic director work with her as a producer and she's just the best she's the best can you briefly walk us through a bit of the process as to how sense and sensibility finally got on stage where did you find this show did someone come to you with the project and they'd written some music and they wanted a place to develop it promote it, produce it, or, or were you involved with it from the very beginning from scratch? I, I'm, I'm asking leading questions, and now I'm going to say, tell us, Rick. <laughs> 
it was from scratch. I was introduced to Paul Gordon, who's the, um, the writer of the show. So he's the composer, lyricist, and book writer. I was introduced to him when I was, it was at the National Alliance for Musical Theater. I was trying to think. I, I served as president for them for a while, but I don't think it was during that time. I was serving on the committee, the, the New Works Committee. They do this big festival in the fall, and I was helping curate that festival that year. His show, he had a show called Emma, which was based on Jane Austen's novel. I read it, and I listened to it, and it was beautiful. It was just a beautiful score and, and a really clever, clever um, adaptation of the book. And I was like, we need to know this guy. Barbara, actually, and I went out to the West Coast. This is Barbara we Gaines, artistic director Barbara of Gaines. Uh, Chicago Shakespeare. That one, yes. We went to um, Theater Works. And in Palo Alto. Are you guys familiar with theater works? Yes. They do all sorts of new musicals and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we went out there to see it. And uh, it was a lovely production. And they already had slated a production that was uh, also going to happen at the Old Globe. And so we came back. We started talking with them. We were like, we need to produce this show. Well, there was already a commercial producer attached. So we approached the commercial producer and they said, no, we don't want you to do it. No! you can't mean that it would be beautiful in our theater we have a court this beautiful courtyard theater how could it you not let us do emma um but they had other plans and and so we literally went back to paul we want to work with you you're really talented and we want to work with you so what are we going to do so he went away and he came back to us and he goes you know what sense and sensibility i really want to do sense and sensibility okay let's 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 think about this let's let me take a look at it and then i'll call you back and I was so drawn to the story because the lead character is a character that doesn't share her emotions. That's kind of her it, right? And so in musicals, what do musicals do? It's all about your singing, about your inner life. And so to me, it was this perfect challenge. How can we do this? And, and Paul was so passionate about it. Barbara was in for the ride. And so we said, let's do it. And we developed it over three years. We did a series of readings. We did a ton of work on book and score and lyrics. It was a great development process, really a, really a strong collaboration that we, we just adored. Um, and it was so great to take it to the stage. I mean, we got to one reading where we were like, do you know what? Let's go. Let's yeah, go. we have a show. We're, yeah. yeah, let's go. Yeah, and and it's also worth repeating what a smash hit that was for you. It was a in in, in the summer, right? It was it was in the late spring and kind of the in, beginning in of summer. The summer, yeah. right? You know the the Jainites. We weren't sure how they were going to respond mm, to it, you know, mm. and they loved it. Mm. They really loved it. We got so many love letters from people saying, "You know what? You found the essence of Jane Austen." One of my dear friends from New York, who is runs writers Rhinebeck Writers Retreat, came and she's a she reads has read everything Austin and she came and she was like you nailed it you found the essence of Austin in a musical it was great so yeah yeah, we had a blast the the night that we saw it maybe we talked about this back then um, there was a woman sitting we could we could see her face because of the way the theater is configured she's sitting in the front row and she was mouthing the lyrics it in places or mouthing the dialogue. So afterwards, we talked to someone and said, "You know, is she the lyricist?" She, it's like, no. And this was apparently either, either a, a Jane Austen fan or someone who was seeing the show for the tenth time. 
Oh, I love that. Don't and then, I, then that? I thought, yeah, well, I well, well maybe it's an understudy, but no, no. She, she did not. She didn't look like an actress or right. someone who could be in any of those roles. But yeah, she, she, she mouthed all the words to all the songs. Love that. L- like, like she was at Wicked or something. <laughs> See? See? <laughs> I know. Fantastic. Oh, it's so great. Is there something that you like that's sort of offbeat that's not you know, typical gypsy, hello, Dolly? Do you know what I'm really proud of? I, did you guys get to see our Ride the Cyclone? Missed it. Couldn't get into it. Oh. Every wait, month. Wait, wait, let me do that again. Oh. I'm going to save so that for, for a little sound I'm so- <laughs> bite. Yeah. I'm going to stick no, in. I'm so proud. You know what? I honestly mean that, sigh because I am so uber proud of that show. It was up in our studio theater, which is like 200 seats up in our at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. And it was directed by the, the incredible Rachel Rockwell. Brooke Maxwell and Jacob Richmond did the um, book music lyrics. And it's to, well, let me tell you what it's about. It's about six, six kids that are on their way to, uh, from the St. Cassian Chamber Choir that are going to a contest at the, the uh, Wonderful Traveling Fairgrounds. And before they do their concert, they go on a, a roller coaster called the Cyclone. And at the apex of the Cyclone, the car comes off the track and they all crash. And they end up in a kind of purgatory that is emceed by a mechanical fortune teller named Karnak. And Karnak tells them that he, they just need to basically tell them why, like why they should come back, and that one of them will get to come back. But it needs to be by unanimous decision. And it is, it is so fresh. It is so quirky. It has this unbelievable pastiche score that's so fun. It had a gorgeous set by Scott Davis and it was I'm uber proud of it and so when you say outside the box or like something quirky that's what what pops into my mind because I'm I'm really proud of it and and I'm really hopeful that it's going to move on oh it's definitely going to have a life beyond this I I it's gonna it's gonna be in New York any minute really I I know do you know someone not yet (laughs) but from from all that you've said and all that I've read and all that I've heard it's it's certainly well you'll see it in New York you'll see it in New York you know it's quirky enough it's small enough um, yet big enough to really hold a kind of an off-Broadway house. And, and the economics of it probably could work out. It's great. And you know the other thing? It's so irreverent and so funny. And so it's, it's black comedy in the best of ways. And then it also has this amazing heart. I can't tell you the number of people that left the theater just in tears because it's incredibly life-affirming too for all of us to sort of hold on to every single moment of of your life and what is a moment of your life and what is a life well-lived what does that mean early on (laughs) we talked about your position as creative producer rick you uh said that you were uh, the overseer of all the artistic work that happens on stage are you primarily focused on identifying, developing, producing new musical and straight play works for CST. How much of your energy goes towards the regular season of, say, Shakespeare, the Shakespeare series? I think anything... Barbara is the best at Shakespeare of yeah. probably anyone in the nation. And if we're doing... If Barbara's directing a play, a Shakespeare play, and it's sort of moving forward in a, the, the producerial model that it is, then I don't have as much to do with those, honestly. Anything outside the box. Did you guys see our Tempest this year? 
Yet another hot ticket. Get another hot oh ticket we God. didn't get can into. I, I cab? Can I get a cab <laughs> yeah. in here? Uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was like everyone was talked. So it was so great, yeah. you guys. You should come to Chicago Shakespeare Theater at 800 East Grand. <laughs> we, no, we, it's we, so great. We it's do, so great. But... Oh, no, it was, it, I'm so proud of it. It was, again, outside the box. And so it had Teller's Magic and, and Aaron Posner directed it and, and Tom Waits music and Palabolus choreography, the Palabolus choreography, two guys form the Caliban mm. in this sort of amorphic dancer way mm-hmm. in this muscular, incredible way. And Teller, who is truly one of the nicest human beings alive, Teller, and so articulate. The irony is that Teller's character, you know, that, that the world knows doesn't speak. And here's a man that is so articulate and so genius. His magic in the show was spectacular and doing magic in a thrust theater ain't easy Mm. and it was it was just a great process so long answer to a short question i i oversee it it all and then there's some that i do more deep diving on so tempest was one that i do more did more deep diving on i have we commission a lot of new work Mm -hmm. so uh i have oh about six things in the pipeline right now there's any you can tell us about Sure. <laughs> sure, I can tell you about a couple. Oh, um, by the way, here's my business card. So when you're putting together your your press invite list for oh, your sure. shows, uh, we'd love to go <laughs> see <laughs> things at the Chicago Shakespeare. I got it. Thank you. I can't believe you're not on the list. I, I can't believe it either. Well, and you someone's, can, and, someone's and, head's going to roll. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as a, as a tribute to you, I mean, we're, we're not kidding. I mean, these the, Ride the Cyclone. The Tempest, impossible tickets, sold out. I know that was kind of cool. It was sense and sensibility. I mean, we had you know we could we could go to like do an added performance at eleven o'clock on a Tuesday or something. <laughs> it, you know, it was very tough to get into. Yeah, no. but we're now talking about what's in the pipeline that you can tell us about. Several things, several things. Um, so, sense and sensibilities moving forward. You know that. I'm working on a new musical with Alan Schmuckler and Mike Mahler. And the Lincoln Squares. Do you guys know about their band, the Lincoln Squares? It's a like a pop folk group that they're in. And we're doing a show called Grave Diggers Hamlet that will be at the theater in the fall with the five guys. It's going to be very, very wow. cool. I'm really excited about that. That is in the beginning stages. And that's with Laura Shellhart, too, doing the book. And then we're working on a new musical of um, Bedknobs and Broomsticks with uh, Neil Bartram and Brian Hill. And so that is in development. And we've got a couple of other plays, a couple of other musicals. But so th- that's what we've got. Mm. It's, it's exciting times. We've that got sounds, all sorts of things. That sounds wonderful. You say that the, the first one is going to be uh, in the upstairs or on the main stage? Upstairs. The, studio, uh, the Gravedigger's Hamlet will be on the, in the studio. And and is it a kind of an offbeat take on Hamlet? Is it Hamlet? It is the it is the of? Hamlet story that is basically seen through the eyes of the grave diggers, five grave diggers, oh. uh, five brothers, grave diggers that um, are just uh, in the in the graveyard outside the castle. Cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And those you guys know Mike and and Alan's music. Do you guys know? Yeah, we we do. Yeah, because yeah. Mike and Mike's amazing things are happening for him. Amazing things are happening for Alan and and Laura Shellhart, who's an, a great playwright. It's a terrific team, and I'm thrilled. Fantastic. Yeah, we actually heard a song of Mike's at 
an event that we went to, and I wanted to ask you about this. We were lucky enough to get an insider friends and family view of the new Writers Theater space in Glencoe. Cool. Um, have you seen it? Have you been up there yet? I haven't. I'm thrilled. I love Michael, and, and it, I hear it's just gorge. Uh, they have a gala grand opening thing. Not grand opening, but they have a gala going on, I think, this coming Monday. And they wanted to do a dress rehearsal of it. Fun. So they did that last Monday night, and we got invited by a friend of ours who's the uh, finance director there. Uh, we were able to mingle around in the lobby and have cocktails and hors d'oeuvres and then go visit the various holding rooms where they're going to have donors having dinner. And then we were ushered into the main stage area, which was very cool, uh, a little dusty, <laughs> but still, it's on its way. Yeah. And they did an entire presentation. They must have had... How many actors did they have? Did they have 30 people in that cast? 25 to 30 people uh, as actors and presenters of varying degrees. And they did monologues. They did scenes from plays like The Real Thing and something from Arcadia, which is it just which is happening soon. Now, yeah. They did musical numbers from uh, past shows that they've done, including oh, The Minister's, Minister's Wife. Wife. Of course. Uh, and Days Like These... Days Like Today, See, which I Alan Schmuckler, which Alan Schmuckler, Alan Schmuckler wrote, right. and they also Days did Days Like Today, Days Like Today, and then they did three songs, three absolutely brand new songs that were reflective of the new space and what the future of writers' theater is going to be all about. So we had a wonderful experience. Michael is a dear friend and has said that he would give me a tour, so I look forward to that. And did you guys read the review, Blair Kamen's review in the Chicago Tribune? No, it, he's the architect, the architect review, reviewer. And it's a rave. A rave. It's really, wow. it's a beautiful, beautiful review of this. And he's, a, he's this. a tough customer. You know, he has very distinguished taste. He's a mm -hmm. smart guy, and, and um, they got a great review. And I'm so happy for them. I'm so happy for Michael. Michael has worked so hard mm. and so dedicated to... For so doing, many years. Yeah, doing great art and, and working with great artists. And he's, he, deserves, he deserves everything he's getting. How do you think that this new toy that Michael Halberstam now has and that the, the company has, this beautiful, beautiful facility with multiple staging areas and multiple places where they can mount things, do you think that this is going to increase their desire and ability to produce new musicals like um, A Minister's Wife. And I'm not asking you to project their you know, five-year mission, but uh, I wondered if you had any insight as to how, how dedicated they are to moving down that path. Michael and I have had great conversations about developing new musicals and developing new works. And um, they're, they're dedicated to, the, to writers, you know? And when they're passionate about <coughs> writers, then they hence their name, they get behind them. And, and I think this new space will certainly provide them with more opportunity and a, and a platform on which they can play that's a really fun sandbox, don't you think? Yeah. You know, I'm curious you're, you, where you are now, Chicago Shakespeare. You just did a show that was in Russian, presented by a Russian company, we right? Did. Talk, we did. Talk about that for a second. Well, we did the uh, Measure for Measure. That was the Cheek by Jowl in the Pushkin Theater, directed by Declan Donnellan. That was genius. Really, really, some of, I think, the most dynamic direction and movement of an ensemble and, and symbolic, metaphoric creation I had ever seen. And really so glorious this, in that storytelling. It's a tough script. I mean, it's a real, there's a really tough ending there, you know, after, after you've gone through all that. 
And he handled it so beautifully and with such grace and stagecraft that it was really incredible. And then right now we have the Belarus Free Theater that's doing King Lear up in the studio. And this is an amazing company, guys. The Belarus Free Theater, they can't perform in their own country or they would be arrested. I mean, they, they couldn't do that. That would be against the state. And so here they are, and it's in this unbelievably creative take on Lear. And from limitation comes creativity. And you see the wealth of that when you look at a company like Belarus. And you say, you know what? What you have created and what you've done with nothing is astounding and the creative juices that are flowing. It's really incredible. So yeah, I'm really, really proud of that. Yeah. Years ago, there was the Chicago International Theater Festival. I mean, maybe right. I'm going back so, 15 no, or 20 awesome. years ago. Yeah, at least it was awesome, days. but it was extremely expensive, and it, it fell apart. And I said to Gary, if it wasn't for Chicago Shakespeare, some of these shows, we would never get a chance to see. They wouldn't come to Chicago, because they've got to be... It's got to be phenomenally expensive to for travel, housing. Well, and I love that you're saying that. World, our World Stage Series is a really important part of our program. And, and just as getting our work out to the world is important, it's just as important to us to bring the world to Chicago. We're a first-class theater city, and we should have these amazing performers from all over the world. And, you know, we're doing Shakespeare 400 this year. This year, Do you guys know about Shakespeare 400 yes. in Chicago? It is an incredible really unprecedented year-long festival of 850 events across stages, schools, museums, restaurants, parks, all over Chicago for the entire year of 16, bringing in truly some of the, the best talent from around the world and us producing the best talent, working with the world-class institutions like the Lyric, the Joffrey, like the Museum of Contemporary Art, like the Art Institute, like all of these amazing artists and, and organizations at play. And then this other co really cool thing. So we were like, okay, Shakespeare, it's the celebration of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's legacy. And, and in doing that, we were like, okay, we're in Chicago and we have all these great theaters and all these great artists, but we also have these amazing artists known as chefs. And what do you do, what can we do with them? And so we were taking the 38 piece canon and each chef that we have, we have Rick Bayless, Tony Montuano, Tom Van Lente, Ryan McCaskey, um, Bruce Sherman, Carrie Nehabedian, Tanya Baker. These amazing chefs are going to each do an artistic culinary response to one of the 38 plays. So they'll either do a tasting menu or they'll do an entree or something in their restaurant throughout the entire year of 16. And this is being wow. curated by our friend of the show... Alpana Singh, right? Alpana Singh, yes. Alpana Singh has helped us put this together. And Alpana and I are actually working together with the um, chefs to, oh, to um, that, bring the salt together be this year. I'll have the oysters Othello, please, and the <laughs> Macbeth mackerel. It's just, when, yeah, exactly. When you get to Coriolanus, it starts to get a little tricky. Yeah. Did you, uh, is, it, is it too early to tell? Or uh, can you tell us what some of these dishes are going to be like? So, for instance, Mindy Siegel at Mindy's Hot Chocolate. Any, I'm, any I'm, sense I'm not of sure. I don't know what show, what what um, play Mindy has. I know that Rick Bayless is doing Midsummer Night's Dream. Tony Montuano is doing Romeo and Juliet. Art Smith is doing King Lear. 
right? at the Blue Door Don't you kitchen. love Art Smith? Yes. Uh, come on, I yes. love Art Smith. It's like quintessential Chicago. And uh, Carrie at Naha is doing Measure for Measure. Yeah. That's just that she's be, genius. She's, that should be fantastic, right? I mean, so it's an exciting year. It's an and it, this it, is fantastic. Maybe this should be our whole next season. We'll what? Just going to restaurants and well, eat, well, booth booth one in Shakespeare four hundred. We're, we're jumping all over the place here. Were you Follies? You did a great production of Follies a couple Thank of years you. ago. Do you know? I so Gary Griffin directed one of my favorite things we've done. One of my favorite things. Brilliant cast. Gary Griffin's direction. So. Great. I think of that. You know how productions haunt you? That production comes back to me all the time. I love talking about follies with people who love musical theater because I, I think it's a show that's almost impossible to do. It's impossible to do a perfect production of follies. No, no, Did go, you think go. you did the perfect production? I don't know perfect. Perfect, I don't think exists, but I think it was damn good. I think it was really great, and we were so proud of it. And you know what? Talk about not, no tickets. We were, I mean, we had stools in the back for people to, like, peek behind a pole. It was incredible. And I'll, I have to share one little story. So Sondheim wanted to come see it, and he's very, uh, he and Gary know each other well. And so he came, and he's a very private person. And so he, he came to the theater and really came, you know, didn't want anyone to know and, and saw the show and, and said, you know, after the show, he would be, he would more than likely just head out. And at intermission, Gary and I met him up on the fifth floor at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, and we had a bottle of wine, and we're talking. And, and he was really enjoying it and, and had such wonderful things to say, and, and obviously his tremendous history and, and the creation of Follies. At the end of the show, he came out and said, I want to meet the cast. Mm. Right? You guys just gaps. I love that. That's what I did too. And so he goes back and they didn't tell the cast, although they, I'm sure some of them had seen him in the house. We don't have the largest house in the world. So he's in the green room and there they told the cast to everyone go to the green room. And so the entire cast crew are in the green room. Um, Steve Sondheim walks around the corner and everyone starts crying. And it was just, it was really this amazing experience. And he was so gracious and so kind and thoughtful and complimentary. And it was one of those magical moments in theater that will remain a singular signature moment in my life. Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> 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 we we had the pleasure of seeing um, Sondheim in the park this summer, and he came to the concert at uh, the Grand Park Music Festival. We were sitting, I don't know, what, eight feet away from him, mm. eight feet from stardom, and uh, we attended a after-concert soiree in his presence, but we never got to meet him quite like that. He's a that. lovely man. He's been to the theater many times now. We, we've actually honored him with our Spirit of Shakespeare yeah. Award. Yeah. He's, he came to see Roadshow, which actually Gary's Roadshow is at the Signature Theater. It's just about to open at the Signature Theater in Washington, yeah. which is exciting. And, uh, but he's a lovely man. He's yeah. a really lovely man. He's, been a, he's a friend of our theater. You travel quite extensively, seeing things uh, all over the world um, uh, with, by yourself, with Barbara Gaines, uh, with other people from Shakespeare. What are like your three favorite places to visit? Other than Chicago, obviously. You're, you're a Chicago say, boy. Do you know what? I've, I've, taken, I've been very fortunate, and we've taken shows all over the world. Indeed. I would have to say that Australia 
is one of my favorites. Any Sydney, place particular? Sydney. Sydney, I think, is a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, I loved Sydney. I love Edinburgh. I love going to the festival at Edinburgh. You take things there a lot. We've right? taken, I, I do a lot of work with the Q Brothers, mm. and um, we've written two musicals that we've taken to the Edinburgh Festival based on Shakespeare plays. And then I did another, I did a play with Ompile Melusi, who is a South African playwright, really incredible playwright called Cater. And that went to Edinburgh Festival after we did it at the market in jo- Joburg, in Johannesburg, which is a really interesting place. Have you guys been to Johannesburg? Have not been. It's a fascinating, I, w- I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite places of the world, but it's a fascinating place and its history is so troubled, but it's, um, it's a really fascinating fascinating town and, and incredible, incredible people. A little teeny town, we took that also to this little teeny town on Eastern Cape in South Africa to this, one of the biggest art festivals in, in Africa. And um, that, was, that was great fun to be there and in the mountains of, of Africa. When do you get to say that? Um, putting on a show. And uh, oh, you know, we were just in the mountains of Africa putting on a show on Thursday. Friday. I had a show. I had a show in Africa. <laughs> so that was cool. I don't know. It's been, we've been really fortunate to go to some really Indeed, cool you places. Have. Those are and London. Places. I love London. This, this was cool. This was one of my favorite, one of, again, one of my favorite things. I'm so, so lucky to do what I do. We premiered Othello the Remix at the Globe in London. And so truly premiered it. We had, we had done basically a dress, re- invited dress rehearsal at our theater. And then we arrive at the Globe. We were part of the, the pre-Olympiad that they did in 2012. So it was the pre the cultural Olympiad that they did mm-hmm. in London before the Olympics there. And so the Globe was doing 37, 37 plays from 37, 37 different countries. And so we represented uh, the United States and North America. There wasn't anyone else in North America. And we did a hip-hop version of Othello. So we premiered at the Globe, and I will never forget. Have you guys been to the Globe? Yeah. And, and so it's it's an incredible thing, right? Yeah. And there are all the groundlings, and what? It's like 1,700 people, all told, when everybody's in there. So it's packed. It's just packed. And I'm sitting up in the booth, and, and I, um, I was going to jump out of my skin because this had never really been in front of an audience before. And here we are at the Globe, the first time that they've had amplified sound at the Globe ever because it's all about the acoustics and to watch that show come to life in front of this audience and to hear them laugh and to hear to realize that oh my god it's working it's really working and it was great it was great but i love london london's awesome that's such an inspirational story um rick something we like to do with our guests is um a little game we call (laughs) chat pack (laughs) And then we like to string them I up. I wasn't by sure where th- that was going. Yeah, then we like to string them up by their thumbs and <laughs> oh, stay away from me. Pour hot oil on them and stuff like that. Um, it, it's just a series. It's sort of a parlor game. It's a series of questions of things that maybe I would never even think to ask you about, or things that you wouldn't think to tell our listeners about. You've gotten if all you're, nervous. If you're a game for it, I wonder if you'd like to play a couple of questions with us. Just say yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> Why don't you pick a card? Any card. And read that to us, and then we'll, um, then we'll all help you answer. What is one event in the future whose outcome you would really like to know now? 
Hmm. Oh, do you know what it takes me to? It doesn't have to be about work, right? Definitely doesn't have to. No, it, it's it my daughter. I, I live every day thinking about her future and thinking about how her life will go and that we're not screwing her up too much. And, and, I, and so that's what I, so an outcome is just that when she gets to be an adult that she's happy and healthy and and oh god I've just brought down the room didn't what I? a wonderful <laughs> answer was... no she's uh, she's nine now she's right? nine oh she's awesome and she's... she's she's swimming and she's she's swimming hopefully not at this very Whoa. moment I'm well, gonna run off to her, her <laughs> you'll be in trouble in a, in a but she's swimming and she's jumping and she's laughing and she's just being a, you know a, what? Life a young is girl sweet. yeah life is sweet we adopted her nine years ago and she's yeah. she's just the light of our lives excellent see these aren't so hard no, you want to do another one? Of course. Well, wait, wait. Do, don't I get to play? Don't we both play? Oh, well, here. you can if you'd like oh, to, Oh, yeah, Roscoe. you should. Aren't you going to play? No. Roscoe, you have to play. Roscoe, please play. I will play. I would love to know who's going to be our next president. Oh, good one. But more importantly, and I think this is very profound, I want to know that I will be able to get tickets to see Bette Midler and Hello Dolly. Right. <laughs> 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 because it's all about priorities, Roscoe. Oh my, it, it is. is all it about is. I mean, you excited about that? <laughs> oh my God, yes! I I screamed out loud. I well, did. I I, I, I shriek, shrieked in my office. I'm so excited. <laughs> they haven't named two horses yet, though. Right? No, they haven't. No, who do you? Well, no, we won't go there. Well, but, I, you know, this, this could be an entire show. But I did watch. I found <laughs> on YouTube a tape, and I think it's from. For some reason, these exist. Then they're from Great Britain, and it's. Carol Channing, the original production of Hello, Dolly, the original staging. And I began to think about seeing Bette Midler walking around on that runway with all the waiters behind her. And I very masculinely burst into tears <laughs> because I got so excited. She's going to be genius. I, I, think she, I think it's a perfect role for her. Yeah, perfect. perfect. I think it's perfect melding. I'm very so excited. yes, Maybe, that's the event. Jerry Herman thinks it's perfect for her, too. Yeah. Uh, he's a big fan of this. Want to play another one? Sure. Oh, we're just getting warmed up. Yes. Let's see. If, with your safety guaranteed, you could experience something considered very dangerous, what would you want to experience most of all? Do you know what I would want to do? I'd want to do that, and I don't even know what it's called, but that, that skydiving or that cliff diving stuff. Base jumping? Do, is that where they do it with their suits? They and they look, look like, like flying, flying squirrels? Or yeah, flying squirrels. Yeah. I'd want to do that. Yeah. yeah, that sounds like that would be cool. <laughs> Roscoe? <laughs> I, you know, I can't take a cab down Lakeshore Drive without <laughs> dying you're guaranteed of safety. Of, I'm guaranteed, you're guaranteed safety. safety. See, that's where you have to let, let yourself go, Roscoe. Roscoe, the only caveat here is your answer cannot contain anything about Bette Midler and Hello, Dolly. <laughs> oh, my God. And you know what my answer is going to be? That I would audition to play Horace Van <laughs> in Hello, Dolly. <laughs> With your safety guarantee. With my safety guarantee. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or I could be the world's oldest Barnabies. <laughs> <laughs> out here there's a world outside of Yonkers <laughs> what about you Gary isn't this an all play this is a oh I think that we have to yeah I would say swimming with sharks yes I have a deathly deathly fear of sharks Shark, yeah, I I, even in Jaws. E e even yeah. in you know even in two yeah. feet of water it was, was it Jaws I don't or what go, did it when I had my left leg bitten off by a great white, this is titanium right here. No, I'm kidding. Um, Jaws pretty, Jaws pretty much did it. 
okay. <laughs> this is an ongoing segment. Every week yeah. we have to talk about Gary's deathly fear of sharks. Really? Cheetah Rivera normally comes up. Wait, 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 wait. Please thread the needle. <laughs> Well, it, it, they're, they're not necessarily related. Oh, oh, oh okay. No, I thought there was a, an interesting no, shark and, and yeah, slash and, and about connection. about seven shows in a row, I felt the need to mention Carousel at the Lyric Opera. I want to give a preview to our listeners, and maybe this is premature, but I want to let them know that we have secured an interview with Cheetah Rivera sometime in April in New York City. We'll be going there to talk to her. Uh, at the Carlisle Hotel before she does her show at the Cafe Carlisle. That probably will air sometime in May-ish. I realize it may be a little, again, premature to tell our listeners about it, but something to look forward to. That's so exciting, you guys. Congrats on that. That's so wonderful. And I hear she's absolutely lovely. She's recovering from a hip injury. She fell over the holidays. She is just, talk about a dynamo, right? I mean, she's incredible. I mean, her, her Broadway debut was in... I think 1951. Yeah, incredible. We have time for one more question. Okay. No, not that one. <laughs> ah, I'm no, I, 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 I never edit the questions. When people find out what you do for a living, what is the most typical question that they are likely to ask you regarding your job? I, you know, it's interesting because of my title, creative producer, even people in theater. <laughs> don't necessarily know. And so they often come to me and, and say, what do you do? Are you a producer or are you an artistic director? Or what are you? Are you? And, and so that happens to me a lot. The sort of larger world is just fascinated by theater. I think they really are. They, they want to know about what it's like to get to play. We get to play. And um, I think that that's a really fun thing to think about. Roscoe, what about you? I, I work for a hunger relief organization. That's lovely. And when I tell people that, they often go, oh, good for you. Oh, oh. See, I just did that. What, yes, I? what wonderful sacrifice. And, and one, of, one of my favorite stories about that is I encountered some nuns. And some nuns were sent to our office one day, and they were from this crazy order. They're beggars, and they don't, they, they like show up at soup kitchens and ask to be fed. And that's why they came to our office. And it took me a while to figure this out. And it's there. Some of them were French, and I thought they wanted to learn about the work we do and go on a tour. And I finally said, "Are you here because you're looking for food?" And they said, "Yes." Aww. And I said, "Well, why don't I, I'll take you down to the Seven Eleven and buy you a sandwich, an apple, and something to drink?" So as I'm spending forty dollars to feed the nuns. One of them looks at me and says, you know, I, I admire the work you do, but are you, do you think you're contributing to people just like not being motivated to get work and being lazy? And I put my hand on my heart and I said, sister, we err on the side of mercy. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized I had just lectured a nun about Christian values. <laughs> and and I, I couldn't keep it together. <laughs> That's a good one, Ross. Yeah. That's, that's and you one. should have seen, and they were, they, were all, they were miniature people, and I'm kind of a tall guy. And yeah. you should have seen me marching through the office with five nuns in denim habits marching behind me. And, and at one point, someone thought they were actors I had hired to play a big practical joke on the office. But we talked about it for weeks. Or, or you've come from Sound of Music rehearsal. I've come from the Sound of Music rehearsals. That's not a show you would ever do. Sound of Music? Yeah. 
I love Sound of Music, but I don't think it's a show no. we'd ever do. You know, I never say never, though. But I don't think it's a show we do. Maybe you could get Bette Midler to play Maria at some now, point as a fundraiser. Happen, if that would happen, it would pique my interest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Something we usually end our broadcasts with is... Uh, a song? A, a song? A song. Could be a would song. You, you, would you like to sing for How us? How about a dance? No, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. That's you can so sing rude. for us. No, what I'm was your favorite so number? Can I, can I just... We're having so much fun. What was the favorite number you ever got to perform when you were the uh, leading ingenue of the Marriott stage. <laughs> I was a silly billy. Actually, yeah, Richard Christensen used to call me like the grand silly billy, but I, it, whenever I like started to head towards juvenile, he would like send me back to the silly billies. What did I love to do? Actually, Mama Look Sharp from 1776. And, and you won a Jeff Award for it. Oh my God, how did you know that? I think... Uh, that is, the, you do your that. research. That is, I'm just flattered that you did your research <laughs> do all of your jeff awards match they kept changing the no, design actually none of them do and unfortunately one of them fell apart but it's there there i i love the jeff committee and they work so hard yeah. and they do great great work yeah yeah so wait you i interrupted you i'm sorry it's quite all right that's uh, i, I interrupted i'm sorry it's quite all right we're having so much fun <laughs> yes well you guys can go out for coffee and donuts okay rascal okay great if you'd like you go to the swim meet <laughs> well, we'll, we'll go, go to the swim you just keep talking 7-eleven <laughs> he can buy me a little lunch and apple and a drink <laughs> and, and lecture you on christian charity <laughs> We usually end our podcast with a segment that we call the kiss of death. And I know that sounds somber. It's, it's usually a tribute to a person's life, uh, an obituary that we've found uh, written by one of our favorite writers or someone who is significant to the show or significant to the culture or the arts. I, I wanted to pull this one out for today because I know you're going to have something to say about this one. And I'm just going to read a bit from this uh, Bruce Weber obituary from the New York Times. Lois Weisberg. 90 years old, Chicago civic connector passed away, a whirlwind of uh, civic enthusiasm whose decades of shepherding public arts and projects to fruition deepened the cultural life and reputation of Chicago died on January 13th. Beginning in the 1980s, uh, Ms. Weisberg served two Chicago mayors as the head of the Office of Special Events in the administration of Harold Washington and as the city's cultural commissioner for affairs and special events under Richard M. Daly. In those roles, she was responsible in whole or in part for creating programs that have featured hundreds, if not thousands, of performances and encouraged the participation of thousands, if not millions, of Chicagoans and visitors. As Chris Jones of the Chicago Tribune wrote after her death, Miss Weisberg was perhaps the most significant architect or savior of cultural Chicago the city has ever known. Would you, would you concur with a sentiment like that, Rick, that Completely. she was an absolute savior for Chicago culture? Completely. I think it's, it's really well said. Her investment and her belief and her commitment to Chicago was was exemplary. A lot of what we talk about and a lot of the things that we do here on the show or things that we go see would not at all have been possible without Lois Weisberg. She was influential in so many ways. An abbreviated list of her contributions, for instance, in 1984, she started the Chicago Blues Festival, an annual series of free concerts on the Greensward near Lake Michigan, now known as Millennium Park. 
Uh, the city now boasts of it as the largest blues festival in the world. Another musical extravaganza she pushed forward, the Chicago Gospel Music Festival. One of your favorites, Roscoe. I, you, I've been there every year. You love to go to that every year. Held its 30th program last spring. She was also the driving force behind an annual summer-long series of dance nights with live music in different dance genres. That's the um, summer dance that mm -hmm. they have along Michigan Avenue. And every Thursday night or something, I think it's on Thursdays, a different genre of music is playing, and they have instructors who will teach you how to rumba or samba or disco or, or flamingo or do or swing dance. It, it's, it's always really fantastic, and people dress up. People dress up in costumes for these, this swing dancing. and um, It's immensely popular and has grown and grown. Um, in 1999, Ms. Weisberg imported an idea that originated in Switzerland. Everyone will remember this. Having local artists to decorate some 300 fiberglass sculptures of cows, which were placed at different street locations around the city. The exhibition called Cows on Parade, did you remember it was called Cows on Parade? Uh, was wildly popular and replicated in cities around the country and elsewhere. This, is, this was more, one of the more fascinating things. I had forgotten about this reference. Miss Weisberg gained wider recognition and some local notoriety. In 1999, when Malcolm Gladwell wrote a long article about her in The New Yorker, he posited Miss Weisberg, who would become a key figure in his best-selling book, The Tipping Point, as an example of a rare but identifiable type of person. He called her a connector. She's the type of person who seems to know everybody, Mr. Gladwell wrote, and added that she seems to know people from very different walks of life and has the personality to put the right combinations of them together. Mustering a potpourri of scientific research, Mr. Gladwell suggested that people like Ms. Weisberg, who may know a lot of people, though not necessarily well, and who have a seemingly intuitive gift for finding links among them, can be as influential in a society as a mayor or a president or a king. And he's basically calling her you know, oh. the queen of Chicago. That was her fantastic talent and one that cannot be replicated. She was married to Leonard Solomon uh, for a while, a drugstore owner whose brother-in-law was Irv Cupsonet. Chicago Sun-Times columnist who specialized in celebrity comings and goings, and uh, they lived with their two daughters. Their home was a frequent overnight stopover for passers-through in Chicago, among them uh, comedian Lenny Bruce, whose comedy Miss Weisberg claimed that she really did not like. Miss um, <laughs> Weisberg founded an advocacy group to support <coughs> Chicago's parks and another group that helped rescue rail service from South Chicago into Indiana. Her imprint remains, and we remember Lois Weisberg very fondly. It's about time for you to get to your swim meet, young man. <laughs> How many times do you get to say that <laughs> at the end of one of these? Yeah, I many, suppose every time, right? I don't get to say I think swim it should meet be your, very often. I think it should be your new your new goodbye. <laughs> we're going to have that, we're, yes. it's time for you to get to your swim meet. Yes. Roscoe, it's, <laughs> it's time for your acrobat practice. I know. Oh my God. They're waiting for me at the actor's gymnasium. <laughs> Rick, Rick Boynton, a pleasure to have you on the show. You are inspiring and insightful and I, I, I want to be a little bit more like you every day. You're kind. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Roscoe, did you have a good time today? I had a great time. And Rick, I have to one more thing. You have great teeth. 
Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just said that because, you know, people will only hear him. They won't see him. True. But perhaps we can um, include a flattering photograph. On the <laughs> we will indeed page. have a flattering photograph. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, everyone. This is Gary Zabinski for Booth One saying so long and take care. And I'll see you at the swim meet. <laughs> <laughs>